Welcome to the Books and Travel podcast. I'm Jo Francis Penn, thriller and dark fantasy author, bringing you escape and inspiration about unusual and fascinating places, as well as the deeper side of books and travel. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page. And if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my ebooks for free at jfpen.com forward slash free. Hello, travellers. I'm Jo Francis Penn, and in today's show, I'm talking to Howard Kramer about history, faith, and beauty places of pilgrimage in the USA. We talk about what it means to be a secular pilgrim when you're not a Christian, but you love churches, cathedrals, history and religious symbolism and how Howard selected the places to include in his book. We talk about some of the most beautiful places in terms of architecture as well as natural locations and how sometimes the most emotionally resonant places or those that inspire awe and wonder are not the most famous, but those that touch us at a deeper level. So we recorded this in December 2020, before I wrote and recorded my thoughts about The Pilgrim's Way, which we briefly mention in this episode. You can listen to those thoughts in episode 50. Howard certainly recommends some gorgeous places, as well as uh, churches and pilgrimage sites that have meaning beyond faith. And I really enjoyed doing the show notes for this, with pictures of some lovely places. So you can always see the show notes at booksandtravel.page forward slash listen. And this is episode 53, if you want to go see the pictures. So I hope you enjoy the interview with Howard. Howard Kramer is the author of The Complete American Pilgrim, and his extensive site, thecompletepilgrim.com, contains articles and pictures of some of the world's greatest sites of religious interest. So welcome, Howard. Thank you so much, Joanna. Oh, I'm thrilled to talk to you today. So let's start with what sparked your interest in pilgrimage and what has been your favorite pilgrimage so far? I had the opportunity to live in France as a student and during the Christmas break, I went to Italy and traveled around and for the very first time really in my life, got to see some of the, the classic churches and cathedrals of antiquity. And I absolutely fell in love with the architecture and the art and the history, almost more than the religious aspect of it, because but I'd been, developed a very big fascination with seeing some of these wonderful, beautiful old buildings from as some as far back as the Roman era. And I, I, I have a very extensive story about my first trip to Rome. I will not go into it now, but suffice it to say, it ended with me seeing uh, Christmas Eve Mass at the Vatican. And it was just an absolutely spectacular event for me, even though I'm, I'm not Catholic. It was a wonderful thing to see. As for, I, I would say, I don't know if I count that as a pilgrimage, because that's not what I set out to do initially, but I do look back on it as one. To date, I've been to... I, would, I hesitate to say thousands of churches and other religious sites, but probably at least a thousand around the world. And to date, my favorite pilgrimage, the, the one that I look back on most fondly was in three years ago for the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. I had the honor to attend the 500th anniversary celebration in Wittenberg, Germany. 
I got to go to the to go celebrate at the church there with the local Lutherans, and it was a wonderful experience to to have happened that I was able to do that. I was supposed to do something akin to that this year. I was supposed to come to England this year in advance of the 400th anniversary of the Pilgrim voyage to Massachusetts. The Pilgrims, for those of you in the United Kingdom who don't know, those are the ship of colonists that sailed in 1620, 400 years ago to the United States. In the United States, it's recognized not just as a, for its historical importance, but for its religious importance. And I was very excited to come over there and visit some churches in England and the, and the Netherlands. And unfortunately, that got canceled. But that's something along the lines of what I like to do, visit, visit big churches, especially for big events. Oh, no, fantastic. And you and I, we definitely share an interest in the architecture and the history. And I'm not a Christian and my husband's Jewish and I'm always dragging him to cathedrals. <laughs> For the because uh, there's just something about them. We're going to get into some of those specifics in a minute. But I did want to ask about this: is the word pilgrim and pilgrimage? Because neither of us, as we're saying, that we're particularly religious, and yet the word pilgrimage has been associated mainly with religious things. So, do you think that has changed? That maybe that's become more secular, or maybe it's just a meaningful journey because I see a lot of people now want to do the Camino de Santiago. I recently did the Pilgrim's Way here in the UK, which is supposedly Catholic, but a lot of people walk it just for interest's sake. And so what do you think about the word pilgrimage and, and pilgrim in these modern times? First of all, I wanted I was actually going to mention the fact that you had taken the, the walk did you walk the Beckett Way to Canterbury? Yes, I did. Yeah. First of all, I, that's something I've been to Canterbury and I've been to the cathedral. I've been to the tomb of Thomas Beckett, but I didn't do the walk. And I'm just so you know, I am very jealous. That's a trip I would <laughs> like to do. And not to turn the question on you, but how was that journey? Just real quick, just to tell me, was it really inspirational? Yeah, yeah, it was. There were some fantastic historical uh, places along the route, but also these beautiful natural sections, which of course have lasted much longer and have been there for countless generations. But I, I too, uh, this was for the 850th anniversary of, of Beckett's uh, martyrdom. And so I too wanted to do it, but all the Beckett 2020 stuff was also cancelled. <laughs> So it was great. Uh, excellent. Okay. Okay. I, I didn't mean to turn the question on you. In answer to your question, uh, I would say pilgrimage, especially as we use the word in the 21st century, is absolutely not confined to the religious or spiritual spheres. It, it, this, the idea of pilgrimage, and, I, and, I, and I'll get to some of my additional thoughts on that in a second. Pilgrimage, first and foremost, I think is about personal development and enlightenment regardless of where you're going. It can certainly apply to many things besides uh, a Christian visiting Rome or a Muslim visiting Mecca. In my opinion, I think it depends on your motivation. And I came up with one example. If you go to visit Paris and you're on vacation in Paris and you visit the Père Lachaise Cemetery, which is a very famous cemetery in Paris, so you're just going there to look around and see the sites. I would just say, I would not consider that a pilgrimage if you're just going there for a visit. However, if you're a huge fan of the, of the rock group, The Doors, and you spend years listening to their music and you save up for years to go to Paris just to visit Jim Morrison's gravesite, that I would say would be a pilgrimage for the fans of Jim Morrison, a, a, a pilgrimage for fans of early rock, <clears throat> excuse me, early rock music. People can make pilgrimages, I think, for all sorts of uh, reasons. 
I know in the United States, historical sites such as battlefields and cemeteries are popular. I'm sure cemeteries in the, in the UK and around the world are popular, but in the United States, there's a whole cottage industry of people visiting battlefields. A nature lover might might save up to specifically to go visit a national park or a wildlife reserve. Surfers might save up for years to make a spectacular journey to Hawaii and, and ride the pipeline. Elvis lovers might make a pilgrimage to Graceland. There are sports lovers in the United States, and I count myself as one, that endeavor to make pilgrimages to, they, they endeavor to visit different sports stadiums all around the country. And I have a group of friends that I get together with once a year. And every single year, we get together in a different city in the United States and make a deliberate visit to that city, specifically see, to see a baseball game at that local stadium. And I would say, since that's the purpose of the trip, then I would consider that a sports pilgrimage. So yes, I think pilgrimage can mean a lot of things to a lot of people. I think the one thing in common, and some people might say a pilgrimage is really a pilgrimage of the mind. I disagree with that slightly. I think by definition, a pilgrimage involves, must involve some sort of a journey. I think a pilgrimage really involves three stages. One is years of study about a place, desire to go to a place, The second part is the journey itself to get there. And then the third part is the culmination of the pilgrimage is the actual arrival at your destination. That's Uh, interesting. I would add a fourth stage, which I feel is the reflection on the return, because this is as we're speaking about my pilgrimage, I have lots and lots of feelings and memories and pictures. And, but I have I need time to reflect on that pilgrimage in order to make sense of it. And I, I feel like that period of reflection is something that after a true pilgrimage, whether it's to Jim Morrison's grave or or something else's, you decide whether or not you have achieved whatever you wanted to achieve and you've found meaning in whatever you've done. And perhaps that's the end of it. If you visited Jim Morrison's grave, you've done it. Whereas I feel like often you mentioned the, the battlefields, for example, or the religious sites, there are other sites. So do you want to do it again? Or do you want to make it harder? Or So yeah, I'm adding the fourth stage, reflection. I I think that that addition is more than fair enough. I would agree with that 100%. Great. Then that brings us to, I, I want to talk about the complete American pilgrim. What was your definition of a site worth a pilgrimage? How did you decide what to put into the book? That was actually a really hard thing to do. There's 250 sites in the book. There are, at last count, believed to be over 300,000 houses of worship in the United States. So fewer than one in 1,000 made it into the book. And obviously, I haven't been to all of those, and I not even close. I wouldn't even pretend to try. The vast majority of sites in the book are chosen for historical reasons. A lot of those churches have a great or important, or even tragic history associated with them. My starting point was, I I looked at what was the oldest stuff. As you said, on pilgrimage, you're looking at ancient things. We don't have ancient, but we have a lot of churches that are over 300 years old. For us, that's ancient. Most of the church, any, most churches that I found that were built prior to 1650, that are still standing in the United States, pretty much got a free pass and made it into the book. To make sure that every state and territory was represented, the oldest standing church 
in every state is included in the book. That was just an automatic. That, that was that made a little bit of the process easier for me. So there's at least 50 churches and all the all the oldest religious sites in every state is a church. There's no synagogues or temples or anything that are that there are some that are pretty old. Some of them where we have very old congregations, but the churches are newer. I put those in. There, uh, an interesting story, by the way, going back to the pilgrims. The church that the pilgrims founded in the United States, which is considered to be the oldest congregation in the United States, the congregation was actually formed in England and moved over here en masse to Massachusetts, where they established the church building that's there now is actually only about 150 years old, but the cemetery behind it has all the original settlers are buried there. So I included that one. The Old North Church in Boston is another example that really had no religious important. It's a religiously important church, but it's more of historical importance because of its relevance to the Battle of Lexington and Concord. So I'm a little bit all over the map in terms of the history, but history was a major aspect. Some of the churches were chosen because of their beauty or architectural importance. And I was I took a very good look at prominent architects that have worked. Charles Bullfinch, who was a very famous architect in the, I'm sorry, the 18th, 19th centuries. And he designed some of the most phenomenal buildings in the, uh, the uh, early American buildings in the United, in, in Washington, DC, in New York, in Boston. Uh, so a couple of his churches I included, Frank Lloyd Wright. So uh, some of his churches in a synagogue of his are included in the book because of their architectural uniqueness. And then I also threw in some record setters the largest churches, the tallest churches, uh, the highest churches, and even the smallest church, the smallest recognized house of worship in the United States, and I believe in the world, is just a little shout out to these guys, is the Cross Island Chapel in upstate New York, which is only big enough for two congregants and one minister and and must be accessed by a rowboat. <laughs> that's so. wonderful. I love that. That that's super unique. Uh, so let's get into some of those because uh, my first one is about the most beautiful places because I I love taking photos and you mentioned some architecture there. So what were a couple of the most beautiful places either for architecture or for nature? Okay, this this one first of all super tough. And if you've been to a lot of cathedrals, especially Catholic and Anglican cathedrals, you know how beautiful some of these buildings can be, especially on the inside. Mm. They just they can just be overwhelmingly beautiful, and that's the case in the United States too. People, not so much today anymore, but certainly back in the 18th and 19th centuries, people poured a lot of money into their houses of worship, and some of these they, they represent some of those beautiful architecture of the 18th and 19th centuries. But if I had to pick one, the most beautiful church in the United States, in my opinion, or the most beautiful religious site in the United States, in my opinion, is probably Memorial Presbyterian Church in St. Augustine, Florida. And if you get a chance, Google it. I, I think I've got some pictures stashed away. It is a stunningly beautiful building. It was built with money from the Flagler fortune. He's one of the millionaire of the who helped to establish the railroads in the United States. He built this absolutely gorgeous church. It's in St. Augustine, Florida. It's just stunning. It's surrounded by palm trees. It's exotic. I think it's everything you want in a perfect church picture. 
If I had to choose what churches had the most magnificent setting of nature, it would be hard to beat the Yosemite Chapel at Yosemite National Park. For some of you viewers who are not familiar with America's national parks, uh, Yosemite National Park is one of the most beautiful and photogenic national parks in the United States. The church, it's a tiny little wedding chapel, and and behind it are the mountains, and it's just jaw-droppingly gorgeous. I'd have to say for a, for a runner-up, I'd probably pick to uh, choose the Chapel of the Holy Cross in Sedona in the state of Arizona, which is uh, a modern church, but it's built into the side of a red a redstone cliff overlooking the desert. And it's it's hypnotic to look at. And it's even better to go up there and to look down out at this giant expanse of desert and mountains in the distance. I also like the uh, another little one I like is the Wayfarers Chapel, which is a basically a glass chapel that's located in Los Angeles, that's right over close to the Pacific Ocean, and it's surrounded by nature. It overlooks the Pacific, and that gives you a great view while you're worshiping. Mm. And a surprisingly large number of my favorite beautiful churches are actually chapels that can be found on college campuses. I particularly like the Naval Academy Chapel in Annapolis, Maryland. And while I personally don't go in for modern architecture, I'm not a big modern architecture fan. If you like modern architecture, the Crystal Cathedral in Anaheim, California, is a wild, it looks like a giant, weird origami mirror. It's crazy to look at, but worth a, worth a peek if you're in the area. Oh, those are some fantastic places. And uh, it's so interesting. I love Sedona, that color red. That's one of my yeah. favorite colors. I went in my teens to Sedona and, and and it was just beautiful. So I appreciate that image in my mind is quite clear. But I, I did want to ask about spirituality because I have indeed found that I've had spiritual experiences in places that are beautiful in terms of nature, that awe and wonder, like you mentioned Yosemite. But Equally, I felt closer to whatever someone might call God in man-made cathedrals. But sometimes you go in and they're completely dead and you just feel like, oh, this is this does not feel spiritual in any way. And I, I think there are sort of these feelings around places of worship. And maybe it's something that's imprinted on the environment because so many people have worshipped there. Or I wondered if, if there are any places that you particularly resonated with in that way. There definitely are. For all of my love of houses of worship, the truth is that I tend to feel more spiritual in nature, personally. I think I tend to connect more with the with my spiritual side on when I'm in a beautiful mountain setting, a really beautiful forest. It, it will actually get me more into it. So I actually love, I'm actually a big nature lover. I actually love walking, going to national parks and such. I will actually more often than not feel more spiritual outdoors than in most houses of worship. Now that said, there are a couple of places where I don't know if I would say I necessarily feel more spiritual, but there are some places that I've been to that have felt so heavy with history that I have been awed by them. Does that make sense? Yes, a little bit yeah, definitely, definitely. Uh, some of the places that I've been to that I felt really odd, and I'm gonna and I'm gonna actually take some of this answer outside of the United States. But in the United States, there's a couple of churches that I feel absolutely awed in. St. John's Episcopal Church in Washington, D.C. is It's known as the Church of the Presidents. It, it made the news a few months back. 
I won't go into details about that, but the church itself is stands right across the street from the White House. Every president of the United States is worshipped there, and there's a seat in the back where Abraham Lincoln used to come and worship privately during the Civil War. And I know this is going to sound a little cheesy and cliche, but if you go, go there and you sit in that pew, my God, you really feel the weight of everything that happened in, in the 1860s. It's, I found myself very contemplative there, very just awed by, by what, what must have gone through his mind in that pew was a big thing. And I, I got a very similar sense to that at the, let me call it the 16th, another church that's like that where you really feel that, or at least where I really felt that is the 16th Street Baptist Church, which is in Birmingham, Alabama. And this is a church, it's a traditional African-American Baptist church that became famous in the 1960s for the murder of the four little girls in the church bombing. And it became a a major moment in the American civil rights movement. And you go into that church and it is heavy with sadness, even to this day. You go in and you know that these four little innocent girls were martyred there. And it's just, I, I tell you what, I, to be perfectly honest, and I hope this doesn't sound cheesy, it's the only church I've ever been in in my life where I actually kind of got teared up. Mm. I, I really, I felt it. I, I stood in that church and I almost cried. And I'm getting a little bit sad right now, honestly. I, but yes, you can really, you go to a church like that and you feel a connection to something bigger. And I, I don't know if that really answers your question, but some other places, and you can't possibly help but mention going, because you'll feel this in a lot more places, I think, in Europe. I felt them in more places like Europe. Nothing beats Westminster Abbey. And I, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm saying that to kiss up a little bit, but I, honest to God, there is no church in the world I've ever been in where I have felt just the, the, the complete, like, everything history in that church. Yeah, I'm hoping, I'm assuming you've been there. Yes, of course. And it's so interesting because I find Westminster Abbey indeed has that weight of history. But in terms of places that I would say that awe and wonder, for me, the Sagrada Familia in Barcelona. Have you been there? I was there about 20 years ago when it was, it's, we can always say it's been still under construction. I think everybody alive today who's been there could say that they were there when it was under construction. But yes, and even back then, it was pretty impressive. That is kind of jaw dropping. And it's so interesting, this idea of what affects you, like you mentioned that place in Alabama. And sometimes the history, like Westminster Abbey to me is grand occasions, whereas what you've talked about there in Alabama is these were not famous people, famous children, but the emotional impact of the place and that historical event is what makes that place special. And I definitely think that plays into why we do pilgrimage. The the reason we are attracted to any kind of pilgrimage is because it has some kind of emotional resonance with with something in, in who we are, even if we don't feel particularly religious as we both talked about. So yeah, I, I, I definitely get that. So then uh, you did mention that little chapel that you have to get a boat to, but is there anything that surprised you or was unusual that people might appreciate? I've taken trips. I've been all over the world. I've been to 40 American states. I've been to 30 countries. And every trip I've ever taken, 
whatever I anticipate is going to be my favorite thing on the trip is almost never my favorite thing on the trip. Usually my favorite thing on the trip is something that I was not expecting. And that's, that is, I, I have been uh, to so many places where like the thing that I wasn't expecting to be as amazing as it was, turns out to be this, my best memory of a trip. Uh, a few years back, I was up in Eastern Massachusetts with my family. For those of you who don't know, it's, a, it's a, one of our oldest states. The place is packed with historical churches, a lot of churches over 300 years old. And I went to places like the Old North Church and a few others. But the one that really stunned me was the, probably my single biggest surprise in the United States. And I've got one for Europe, too. I want to mention that one. My biggest surprise in the United States was a church called the Old South Presbyterian Church in Newburyport, Massachusetts. And it's just, a, it's a beautiful, I think it's roughly 250 years old, maybe a little bit older than that. It's a beautiful old church. It's been serving this community. It's a wonderful old colonial setting. It's phenomenal. What surprised me about it was that when I was touring this church, the, the, the docent of the church was kind enough to tell me, hey, you, you want to go see our two treasures? I said, what do we got? And she said, let's go up to the bell tower. I said, What's in the, up in the bell tower? She said, one of the last surviving Paul Revere bells. And Paul Revere was a famous silversmith and bellsmith who was a, who fought in the American Revolution. And he's world famous as a smith. Uh, and he didn't make many bells. And one of the last survivors that's still in use was in the, uh, was in the bell tower, the belfry. And so me and my daughter climbed up to the belfry through the trap door and the, and the docent was like, you want to ring the Paul Revere bell? And we're like, yeah. So my sister, <laughs> my daughter, the Paul Revere bell, which was super exciting for her. She was totally excited. And then they said, now would you like to see our, our other treasure? And like, yeah, what else you got? And they said, come down to us in the, in the basement on this tiny little church. And Protestant churches don't typically have this. They actually had a crypt. And buried in that crypt is George Whitfield. And he's just down there. George Whitfield was, and, and he was one of the founders of the Methodist Church, the global Methodist Church. He was second to John Wesley. John Wesley founded the Methodist Church in the United States, which broke off from the Anglican Church. He came to the United States and helped to get the Methodist Church started over here. But the guy who really quarterbacked it was a guy by the name of Whitfield. And he is one of the most important theologians in American history, and his bones are just there in the basement. (laughs) So from a historical standpoint, that was a great find. That was like, that was a wonderful place. You got to drive there. You can't, it's unfortunately, you can't just take a train from Boston to get there. But my, one of my biggest surprises, I love burial sites. I love, I love coming across churches that have famous burials. And I had a whole list, but just I'll just go a couple of them here. The United First Parish Church in Quincy, Massachusetts, two pres- American presidents are buried in their crypt. Nobody ever goes there. They're just there. The two, John Adams and John Quincy Adams, were just buried in the crypt there. And that's, when you go there, the docent will show you, they'll walk you in. And I got a great picture of myself there. The Washington National Cathedral in Washington, D.C., where very few visitors actually go. Washington, D.C. has so many major tourist sites that nobody goes to the cathedral. And buried in the cathedral is President Woodrow Wilson and, and the, famous, uh, the, 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 woman, the famous woman who is blind and deaf, Helen Keller. Oh, yeah. Hmm. 
we went to visit the cathedral to take some pictures. I didn't even realize that she was buried in the cathedral. Uh, the cathedral. Mm. So I, I love burials. I love coming to a church and accidentally stumbling onto, onto somebody buried there that I didn't know was buried there. No, that's very cool. And and I am one of those people. I will always go to the cathedral wherever I turn up. Like when I was in San Francisco, I went to the, the Grace Cathedral oh, yeah. and was stunned to find the uh, labyrinth, which is an echo of the Chartres labyrinth. Mm-hmm. And the doors are the ones, a replica of Florence. It's always very surprising when you go somewhere and you think you're going for a certain reason and then you find something else. So I think that would be a recommendation for people is if you just keep an, an eye out for other things that might be and what other people find interesting are not necessarily what we find interesting. I'll pick up a guidebook to a place and they won't even mention <laughs> what's what, what else might be there. So that's definitely uh, to keep an eye on. But I, I did also want to ask, obviously the USA is primarily Christian. You've mentioned a lot of Christian sites, but there are other places from other religions in the books. So just tell us if there's any sort of favorite place from another religion that, that you like in the USA in particular. There are some other wonderful non-Christian places in the United States, and I do talk a lot about a lot of them. Judaism in the, Amer- in the United States can be traced back to the early 17th century. It's almost as old as Christianity in the United States. There's not nearly as many synagogues, for example, as there are churches, not even close. But there is a rich legacy of architecture, too. One of my favorite synagogues, probably my all-time favorite synagogue in the United States, is the Wilshire Boulevard Temple in Los Angeles, which is a, if you go to Los Angeles and you're in the area of the temple, it's, it's in the direction of Hollywood. This was a, a temple, a synagogue that was built, it was financed by a lot of the movie moguls of the 1930s. So Louis B. Mayer, the Warner Brothers, Irving Thalberg, all contributed money to its construction it is, and you can imagine they they put not only put the money in, but they basically built the synagogue to look like a movie set. It's you walk in, and it's almost a magical on the inside. It's the uh, beautiful paintings. It just if if you're if you're into synagogue architecture, you're in Los Angeles. Pop by the Wilshire Boulevard Synagogue, absolute must see. There are some great synagogues in San Francisco. There were two synagogues there that kind of raced to, that were built at the same time that raced to see who could be the most magnificent, which resulted in two magnificent synagogues. Most of the best synagogues in terms of visiting are all going to be found in New York City, which is not surprising. Very large Jewish population there. The largest synagogue in the United States, which is Temple Emmanuel, was for a while the largest synagogue in the world. And it is huge. It's a big it's it's rare to walk into a synagogue and feel like you're in a cathedral as opposed to a church. I mean, this is a giant building that seats thousands. The more historic synagogue in New York would be the Spanish and Portuguese synagogue, which was a much earlier congregation. They're connected to a lot of early, it's a beautiful synagogue. They, they, they were connected to a lot of early Jewish activity, including the establishment of the first Jewish seminary in the United States. And as a little trivia point about the Spanish uh, Portuguese synagogue, the cemetery of the Portuguese uh, Spanish Portuguese synagogue in New York City is the oldest surviving structure of any kind on the island of Manhattan. It dates back to the early 1600s. It was the tombstones there are older than any building still standing on the island. 
So if you want to go to New York and see the oldest thing, that's it. Some of the other, there are other religious sites in the United States from other religions, not quite so many, but a couple that I think are worth mentioning are the, and I apologize if I mispronounced, this is a tough one. The Sri Swaminarayan Mandir Hindu Temple in Atlanta is breathtaking. The Shilai Buddhist Temple in Los Angeles and the Islamic Center of America in Detroit. These are all, they're all relatively modern buildings, but built in traditional architectural styles. And if you're interested in visiting some spectacular places of other religions, those would be my favorite choices. I also really like the uh, the Mormon Temple in Utah, Salt Lake City, Utah. I know it's a little, some people not big fans of it. I actually think it's a beautiful building. Yeah, I think that's what's important as well. It's what the congregation has created as sometimes an interesting way to look at things because of course you and I I think I particularly like gothic cathedrals which are generally pretty old and I love that kind of architecture and yet you mentioned some of the temples are just fascinating and if you think about how a congregation or a a community sees their religious buildings that can put a different spin on it so I love that you've mentioned uh, some of these other things but you you did say there was something you wanted to circle back to in in Europe. This is my favorite undiscovered religious site, any religion, anywhere in the world, is the Basilica of St. Denis or St. Denis in Paris. This is a church that virtually nobody goes to, and it is the greatest undiscovered gem, I think, in the European continent. The Basilica of St. Denis is, that is their Westminster Abbey. That is where every king and queen in the history of France are buried. They're entombed there. And they go back way further than Westminster. They go back to Clovis in the fifth century. This was, that's the, that was the Royal Burial Church. And you can find there are people that are buried there. There's uh, Catherine de' Medici is buried there. Louis XIV, the Sun King is buried there. Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette are buried there. This And it's a pain to get to because it is right off the subway. You can take one of the metro lines to it. And it is a beautiful church in and of itself. But when we went there, it was empty. We were like, we we went there, we we took the subway up there, the metro up there. We got off, beautiful neighborhood. It's a wonderful, regentrifying immigrant neighborhood. Great restaurants, very inexpensive. If you go to Paris, you want great food, less money, go to St. Denis. It's a very safe area, so I think it's intimidating to a lot of people, but it's a very safe area. And the church, you go in and you're and you can go by and you can go into the crypt underneath and see in the cave where the sarcophagi are scattered about in the giant cave. And I'm I'm blown away that they get virtually no tourists. I'm stunned at that. And I wanted to give them a shout out because if you go to Paris, if your viewers go to power or your listeners go to Paris. They need to get that onto their itinerary. If they love history, they need to get to that church. I think Paris is a bit like Washington, D.C., right, in that there are so many places to go (laughs) that it can be difficult. But no, I've been a lot to Paris and I've never been there. So I'm putting that on my list. That's a fantastic recommendation. Now, this is the books and travel show. So we like to recommend some books. Apart from your own books, what are a couple of books you recommend on pilgrimage, American or otherwise? There are a ton of books out there. There are books about pilgrimage. There's a lot of books about people uh, that are writing their own experiences 
about their pilgrimages, and there's some really great ones. I'm gonna I'm gonna highlight three that I really particularly love. Probably the most famous one, and I really enjoyed this book a lot, was a book called From the Holy Mountain by William Dalrymple. He did a he started at a place called the Holy Mountain, which is in Athos, uh, it's in Greece. And he started there and he tra- he traveled through the Middle East, visiting all of these ancient churches of the Eastern Orthodox and Oriental Orthodox churches, and talking about the Christian communities that are still there. And he, he, he finishes the pilgrimage in uh, the Holy Land. Wonderful book. I really enjoyed it. There's a great book that I like called The Pilgrim Journey by James Harper. Now, this is not his personal experiences. The book is actually a history of pilgrimage, primarily in the Christian tradition. Basically, he talks about the history of the of Christian pilgrimage, mostly in Europe, why it's important, what's the value in it, how pilgrims lived. It was a really good. If you want to look, look, get a good look at the history itself of taking a pilgrimage, that would be a great book. But probably my favorite of all that I've read, and this brings us back to my trip to Wittenberg, was a book called Here I Walk by Andrew Wilson. Here I Walk is a play on words based on Martin Luther's famous stance when he said, here I stand, when he was on trial by the Catholic Church. Here I Walk is basically the travelogue of Andrew Wilson and his wife, who physically recreated Martin Luther's journey on foot from Germany to Rome. And they traced back the traditional route that a pilgrim would have taken in the 16th, 16th, 1500th, 16th century to Italy. And with all of the, with all of the churches and monasteries that would have been standing that Martin Luther might've actually stayed at. And he talked about, he did it in the same time frame in terms of the months of the year and it was just a really fascinating look at what a pilgrim's walk might have looked like. I, I would imagine it would have been very similar to a, a larger version of what you did taking your trip to Canterbury or what somebody might experience on the Camino in to Spain. But his book, I, I'll say that one again, Here I Walk by Andrew Wilson. Very good. He wrote it in the run up to the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Great. I've read, actually read those first two that you mentioned. So that's very cool. Uh, it, and it's so good to add books to our, our reading list. So that's exciting. I also want to mention your next book, which is called The Complete American Military Pilgrim. So tell people what they can expect from, from that. Okay. This is the third book that I have out. The first one was The Complete American Pilgrim, which was a look at 250 churches and religious sites in the United States. The second one was the complete Christian pilgrim, which is 250 Christian sites, Christian specific sites around the world. This is book number three, the complete American military pilgrim. Now, as much as I do love visiting religious sites, it's not my only interest. I love visiting battlefields and aircraft carriers and forts and castles. I love seeing that aspect. And I never really, it was really always a sideshow to my main trips, but I acquired so much information and so many photos that I decided that I needed to take a break from writing religious oriented travel books. And I really just wanted to address this. There's such an interest in American military history, at least in the United States. Uh, So I wrote this book called The Complete American Military Pilgrim. It's the same thing. It's the same concept. 
but instead of visiting churches and cathedrals and chapels and synagogues, it's a guide to battlefields and the military academies and aircraft carriers and battleships and military museums and airfields and all sorts of related things. Unlike the Complete American Pilgrim, which is exclusively in the United States, the Complete American Military Pilgrim does include sites in Europe and the Far East, primarily because we've fought several wars in both locations. And obviously, Americans, when they go to France that are interested in this thing, they'll make a, they might make a pilgrimage to the Normandy beaches, for example, where the Battle of D-Day was fought in 1944. So there's many sites associated with the Battle of D-Day. There's the, the Utah Beach, Omaha Beach, the Normandy Invasion Museum in, in Bayou. There's a couple of great locations in the United Kingdom, including uh, there's an airfield. And I, I, I'm trying to think of it, and it's completely escaping me at the moment. But there's an air museum. The, the, Britain has an, an air museum attached to their national museum, and there's an entire wing of that museum that's devoted entirely to the United States uh, Air Service during World War II. It'll be a very diverse selection of sites of American military interest that are directly that are tied to the, mili- the, the branches of the military or the battles and a couple of odd things thrown in on top of that. So mm. that's what and it is. And um, I'm hoping that it's uh, as well received as uh, my other two books. I do feel that the feeling is perhaps the same, that the emotional resonance of of visiting military places, because it's all in the end, it's about memento mori, right? Remember, you will die. And if we're looking at the historical war monument, or we're seeing graves, or we're visiting a, a place of worship, that's almost the underlying feeling. Do you think that's the similarity? Absolutely. People go... That's here's the thing. When you were when we were talking earlier about what makes a pilgrimage, I think there is an underlying idea that most pilgrimages, in some ways, in, involve memorializing something. And if you go into a church, you're going to a, a battlefield or a cemetery. It, it, you're usually doing that in commemoration of something that happened. Maybe it's somebody or some people who died, or maybe it's in honor of an event that happened. But yes, you make a really good point that a lot of pilgrimages, no matter where they are on the spectrum of religious to historical to sports or whatever, is people because, you know, and here's the funny thing. When we went to do the pilgrimage to, I'm trying to think of which ballpark it was in Ohio, there's an entire museum there to the ballplayers who have, who were famous in the game, many of them who've passed away. And there's it's so funny. It's funny that you say that the way you did, because you know, you know what? Now that I think about it, yeah, there's a, there's commemorating people and events is po- almost always part of the pilgrimage experience. Now that I think about it, that's a really good way of putting it. Oh, good. That's certainly what I think is important to me when I do these things. And I, I just love to talk to you because I know how much you care about it, too. So tell people where can people find you and your books and everything you do online? Okay. My website is thecompletepilgrim.com. I have about 12 or 1300 articles on there from mostly revolving religious travel, but all I cover other aspects too. My three books, all three books are available on Amazon and they're available in print and in ebook. So if you're interested in any of my books, just go in, put in The Complete Pilgrim and they should all come up. Fantastic. Thanks so much for your time, Howard. That was great. Thank you so very much for having me on. 
Thanks for joining me today on the Books and Travel podcast. I hope you found a moment of escape. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page. And if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my books for free at jfpen.com forward slash free. Happy travels until next time.